Hi everyone, welcome to Borderlands, a multi-episode podcast about the US-Mexico migration border policies and their impact on communities living in the borderlands, in one of the most militarized, controlled, and deadly counties of the border, Pima County in the state of Arizona. This fifth episode will focus on missing persons, families and supporters' struggles to know the truth about their loved ones and also artists and researchers trying to raise the question of the missing at the borders. All over the world, families are mobilizing and looking for their missing loved ones. This search can take years. Sometimes no persons are found. It leaves loved ones in limbo, impacting their daily lives physically and psychologically. We speak of ambiguous loss in the language of psychology. Pauline Bath, a professor emeritus in the Department of Family Social Science at the University of Minnesota, was the one who conceptualized the ambiguous loss in the 70s. Let's listen to Perla Torres, Families Network's director at the Colibri Center for Human Rights, a Tucson-based organization working with families in their search. She explains to us what the ambiguous loss is and how it manifests. So ambiguous loss is a very big issue that we see in the family network. It's very different how we see it play out. So each case is different, but uh, ambiguous loss is really an umbrella of a type of, of grief and loss that the families experience, which translates directly to an unknown or an unclear loss. And a lot of the families, how we see it play out, um, Just a little bit of background on ambiguous loss is that there's two forms of ambiguous loss, and one of them is a physical absence and an emotional, psychological absence. So a physical absence is the one that we um, really see the family struggle with because their, their family member is no longer there with them, which we also see when um, there's an abduction of a child or someone is taken from war or from a natural disaster, something happens. A psychological absence would be more uh, drug abuse or an unattentive parent. So what we really see is, you know, within which the realm of the loss that we deal with, it would be the physical absence. And so a lot of the families we see really jump back and forth from this, uh, from having hope to to that they're still alive and they're just not with them pre in the present. Um, And then there's families that still don't have any answers that jump back to 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 the reality or the fate in which they've, I guess, accustomed to, to 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 say that their loved one has passed, even though they don't have answers. And they're still in this very ambiguous state of not knowing. And there's an inability to grieve. The loss has long-term consequences on living ones. Let's listen to Rubin Uniki, Assistance Research Social Scientist at the University of Arizona Southwest Center. Mrs. Uniki is a social cultural anthropologist with specialization in transnational migration, science and technology studies, human rights, forensic anthropology and the anthropology of death. Well, I spent a lot of time um, early on speaking with families of the dead and the missing. Um, and then I've done some ethnographic research and interviews with families. Um, so, of course, it's a devastatingly painful experience. Um, I, I, I think a lot of families, in my experience, describe it as though it feels like everything is kind of on hold, on pause, that life kind of takes on this um, hesitating um, nature, waiting for news. Um, I've observed that it seems disproportionately to impact women in the family, of course, um, 
not because they're more emotional or something like that, but because they end up absorbing more care duties, either for searching for the person, um, absorbing whatever the care duties of the missing person were, um, and also doing a lot of management of information within the family, like who needs to know what, um, who is, you know, like for example, um, the mother is very seriously ill as an effect of the trauma. Um, and so there will be other women in the family that will work really hard to take care of her. So I think, you know, it's a complicated experience. Every family is different, but in my experience, um, just accompanying them and speaking with families over the years, it impacts the entire family. And it, it creates often a lot of conflict and guilt and blame. Um, it's not uncommon for families to go through divorce or estrangement or somebody's not speaking with someone else. It almost seems like a loss that breeds more losses. So certainly um, a really difficult and inhumane uh, experience. And with that said, um, I also really admire and it, it must be emphasized how hard the families are working to resolve that. And there's so much labor and you know, you've seen this at Colibri and one of the things that I always, that stands out to me when I'm looking at Colibri's data is the number of family members who are in touch about one missing person. I'm doing this like sign language for, you know, you're on the spreadsheet or in the database and there's long list of sister, mother, father, brother, of people who've called and provided some kind of information. Um, so they're very active, I think that Sometimes the forensic um, science community can kind of frame the families as passive sufferers, and um, I think that's not true. I think they're working really, really hard to resolve the ambiguity and to take care of themselves and to figure out their own well-being in the face of something very, very devastatingly painful. Families organize themselves in different ways around the world. As an independent collective, like in Mexico, for example, where they struggle on a daily basis to obtain answers from the authorities, to push them to change their practices. They are getting closer to structures that support them, such as the Argentine Forensic Anthropology Team or La Fondación para la Justicia, for instance. In the United States, they contact different organizations to help them. One, based in Tucson, is central the Colibri Center for Human Rights. Families have created their own mobilization network within this structure. Let's listen again to Perla Torres. She explains how families get organized within the Colibri Center for Human Rights. My work is to work with the families in mutual support and solidarity with the families that we serve at Colibri for the family network. It can range from families from all over the U.S. and also from families in primarily Mexico and Central America. We have families who we work with that are from India. So it, the, it's a pretty large scope of families we work with. The majority of, 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 of how we work is we separate our work into comités, which are these uh, community-led uh, groups that we have found that there's a good majority of the cases that we have. So for example, we have a comité here in Phoenix, Arizona, in Los Angeles, in the Bay Area in California, and in New York. So that's where we found a lot of concentrated families living and we have comités there which in which we gather with the families and do comité meetings, family network meetings where we gather and show our support for one another. And a lot of the families that we have 
like the family in India and families that we have in Mexico and Central America, we have virtual settings, so virtual spaces for them to gather and ask questions and provide support for one another, primarily through uh, Facebook and WhatsApp. So the family network is something that grew out of the family's need to connect grew out of the family's need to really bond with each other. I think there was a need for for families to connect and I think that there was a need for for families to to feel that comfort of each other when so many times this is something that is going on in their lives that they don't talk about. So a lot of the times we we hear family members talk, say that this isn't something that they express to other family members maybe that grief or that sadness that they're experiencing. There's a lot of branches to the family network, the biggest one being the comites, which is, how I mentioned again, is just the cultivating these spaces for, for family members and really cultivating a community for them to, to feel a sense of empowerment as well. In gathering, we do a lot of um, herramientas, um, which we kind of go over things in, in, in their daily lives that could potentially help them, right? So within those grieving periods, so we do, you know, mental health trainings. We also do a lot of different types of activities. Last time since the pandemic, we haven't been able to travel much, but the last comita that we did, we did art therapies, which, you know, really got a lot of these families, you know, say that they weren't very creative, but I think that everybody, you know, is creative and can really create something out of nothing and, and finding ways to, to really express their emotions and connect their emotion. So that's just one of, of the things that, that we've done in the family network. There's also a lot of testimony and sharing stories. A ritual that we have that we've done in each comité, which I think is my favorite thing that we do, is we have an altar, which has all the pictures of the of the missing uh, family members of, of the families who will be attending that comité. And at the end, we all gather around and there's some families like candles or bring flowers. And it's really is a space for them to, to collectively grieve their family members or their friends because they've become friends within, you know, getting to know each other. Also paying tribute to, to the other uh, families and sometimes they sing happy birthday if their birthday had passed or they share loving memories or something that they'd like to say and I think that this has been something so special because in reality when someone passes away we have a place or a space to grieve them whether it be a graveyard and when someone's disappeared they don't hold that space in the world and they don't hold that space um, of course in our hearts in our minds but in the physical world, there's no space for them. So I think by cultivating these little spaces for them, it's it's that much closer to, to healing. So I think that there's a lot of healing and a lot of change that takes place within these comites. And it's really not something that is very hard to, to lead. I think it's very organic when these families want to come together and, and share their stories. We reach out a lot too. So aside from the comites, we also have our Hermandad Revista, which is a zine that is sent to the families um, and new families who are who are joining the family network or who have open cases with us. And there are these really beautiful pieces of artwork that we team up with artists. Some have been local artists, mostly uh, Latinx artists who help us cultivate these these zines into something that the families can have. We also team up with a psychologist, um, Dr. Michelle Silvia, 
who is is one who provides a lot of our guidance. So in these uh, trainings that we'll give to the family members, she really cultivates a lot of the curriculum from there and does also a wellness section in the design. And we're always looking to partner up with, with more individuals, especially in the communities in which we have comites, to help be a resource for those families as well when we can't physically be there, especially right now in the times of COVID. So uh, the Hermandad is really... Again, it's 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 a sign that that really cultivates not only what Colibri has been working on, giving families small updates, but it is also a place for testimony. A lot of families provide their testimony in in the sign, and it's shared uh, with other families. So the families have expressed that this is a wonderful way to you know keep contact with each other and also network outside of their cities. A lot of the times we're, you know, they're very confined to meeting the individuals who are who are there in their own cities. And I think this and the virtual spaces gives them a way to contact other family members that are outside of their cities who maybe share very like very similar stories. If they both had a child who left when they were, you know, in their 20s and you know, around the same time. I think that there's a lot of bonding that happens there. And I think through the Revista, it's a really wonderful way to have a very artistic, physical copy of, of, of testimony and stories and memories. One of my favorite things that we've been able to do with design is I've always been really interested with the idea of memory behind someone. So a lot of these testimony projects, I really love Historias y Recuerdos being one of them and the, re and the Revista being part of that is uh, the idea of music. So the idea of what it is to remember someone through music and through the arts. And that has been really special for me. We did a Hermandad Revista, which was a Spotify playlist that of songs that the family members has stated were their family's favorite songs. And at the beginning, when we first started off that little project, we assumed that we would get a lot of really sad songs. Um, and it was quite the opposite. We got cumbias and we got salsa, we got banda, we got all different types of, of music that were so uplifting and happy and that the family members recalled their loved ones through these songs and through this music. So I think it was a wonderful change of pace <laughs> than maybe what we would typically see and have. And it was so hopeful and so wonderful. And I think it's a testimony. It goes to show how powerful music and memory can be. Other forms of mobilization exist, those of families' supporters. For more than 20 years, people in the city of Tucson have come together to commemorate those who have disappeared and died in the Sonoran Desert. Isabel Garcia from La Coalición de Derechos Humanos describes. When we, we began to see that the, the issue of the death was going to be a huge issue, uh, the most important issue, we began to you know, try to mobilize and so we started You know, obviously the the week every week, and that's now every first day of the of the Thursday. But of course, in the Latino Americano tradition, Mexican tradition, indigenous traditions, there's a remembrance, no Dia de los Muertos, on November second, and we have uh, remembered our people along this border as well as all migrants dying along the border on that day. For us, it's become a very special day here in Tucson because uh, all of us know how important Dia de los Muertos is and we know where our people are. I know where my father is and my brother is and 
And when you think of people that we are remembering, because we read the papers every day and we see who's dying, and uh, you mean not, they don't show them in the paper, but sometimes they will say, you know, two found dead, right? We don't see names or anything, but um, we're with them. And so we, every November 2nd, we do a, um, we used to do a, a long pilgrimage, uh, almost eight miles. Um, and then it, it just got to be too much to carry all of the crosses. We have in excess of now about 3,300 crosses that we have created representing each one of these uh, found remains, right? Because we know there's so many that aren't found. And so we started boxing them and now we have them in, in somebody's warehouse in a, in a garage and we intend to, to do some kind of installation to do all of these remembrances. Just as we're building here, we built a January 8th memorial for six people that were gunned down. I think, I think these over 3,300 people that have died courageous people trying to save their families. I mean, I can't even imagine what it takes, the courage it takes to do that, right? And so uh, they need to be celebrated. We need to do something with these crosses so that we remember and never forget that these policies are what brought this death, right? And we're not going to do that, obviously, as a society until we stop the deaths. And we have no intention of stopping the deaths. The border regions for all intents and purposes, are like a, a war area. Beside the pilgrimage of November 2nd on Las Dias de los Muertos, people in Tucson gathered every first Thursday of each month at the shrine El Tiradito. Isabel Garcia explains. When we started the vigils, we swore we'd be there every Thursday until, until the death stopped at this border. And after 17 years of every Thursday, we couldn't do it. But we invited the community to come out. Um, and stand with us there at, at a vigil, at a place, a shrine that's a only shrine to a sinner in, in this country. And it's always seemed appropriate, right? It is in the heart of Tucson where my mom was born and her mom was born. Um, and it has become the, the shrine of, of the immigrant. You know, when we were in the Manzo in the 1970s, we, we took our first vigil there for the 14 Salvadorans that died in the desert, right? Uh, coming from a lush country to this desert, they died. And we began um, going there. It's a place where we feel is sacred, uh, yet not run by a church that um, it's uh, inter-religious, intergenerational. And more than anything, we have used it for ourselves, for us to come and have some peace to say, you know, we know, You're out there, we, we are witness and we're bearing witness to what our country is doing. And there's been times that we make it very, very special and we'll have, you know, 200 people there. When we did a vigil there in honor of um, Ingram Lopez, Carlos Ingram Lopez that the police just killed, we went there. So the community has come to view that space as a space for for justice, for coming together to unify, for justice to contemplate and to commit. You know, people go there to commit, uh, to fight these, these structures and institutions, you know. And so we've had um, Thanksgiving Day and there was four of us 
on a Thursday. And then we've had times where we had 300 people there, right, depending on. But the community knows, and the community comes. When we stopped having it every week, we invited the community to make it their own, to come whenever they wanted, and think about the thousands of people that have perished, you know, for no good reason. I think many vigils are, uh, I think are both important for the person. For me, they're very important. I come to feel what others are feeling. I don't feel alone, and I feel that we can organize and go forward, right? And I think most of our meetings, but especially vigils, uh, depending on the vigil, you know, sometimes we're more inspiring than other times, but I think the community vigils um, represent, you know, a, a step forward by a person um, to come together to say, yes, we've got to come together to remember, right? Because those of us that remember are also out there organizing to, to stop, to shout, you know, but, but the vigils are important because we come together for what's important. And it's our lives, it's our families, you know? It's, um, that's why we like to sing, you know? It's, and have music and have poetry because in the end, that's what humans are about. You know, if we weren't about all of that, people wouldn't be crossing the borders. We wouldn't care. I mean, we have to live. And uh, the community vigils are, are, are part of that. There are also artists who try to make visible of what happens for migrants in the desert. Alvaro and Ciso, artists based in Tucson, has different projects. Where Dreams Die is one dedicated to put secular crosses in the Sonoran Desert, where people were found dead. Alvaro and Ciso showed that the American dream seems not to be for everybody. Let's have Alvaro and Ciso talk about it. It's a combination of art and uh, political commentary and social commentary as well about uh, people dying out here in, in the Sonoran Desert in southern Arizona. And, uh, and it's about marking the locations where migrants have died over the years. We have the locations where those people have been found, where the bodies have been recovered. And uh, once a week, with a team of helpers, I go out into the desert and put markers. Uh, markers that are crosses that look like Christian crosses, uh, but in reality they are not. They are more, more of a, a marker that has no religious connotations is a secular piece if there's such a thing as a, a secular cross. And, and it's also a geometric equation, you know, a vertical line and a horizontal line, and the two lines meet somewhere. And to me, that's a, that's a symbol, but when we are alive, we are vertical, we are, you know, erect, we're walking. And when we are dead, we are horizontal. That's, you know, that's very as simple as, as, as you can imagine. And, the, and where the two lines meet, that's when the person goes from being alive to being dead. And uh, so that's the, uh, my idea of a secular cross, you know that. But it's also a historical cross because the cross was invented by the Roman Empire to kill people. You know, back in the Roman days, they built these big crosses and hang people there in the sun without any water publicly where everybody could see them dying little by little until they died. You know, these were uh, enemies of the empire, you know, common criminals, false prophets, you know, and people like that. And 
that analogy is pretty much what is happening here. You know, people are dying out in the desert because they are exposed to the elements without any water. And, and also because the strategy of the government is to use the desert to kill people as a deterrent. But they didn't think the whole thing thoroughly because when you are poor and you are desperate and you have nothing else, you have to make the trip here regardless of how dangerous it is or how uncertain it is and what is it that you're going to find here. So a lot of people are calling, you know, calling this migration looking for the American dream. But that's no longer the case because the American dream never was never a real thing. You know, it was a notion that to attract people from Europe, to attract people from Scandinavia and from Ireland and from Italy and from France and from all of the people that had that same profile. The, the, uh, the American dream was never intended for Mexicans, blacks. They came here as slaves, you know, Native Americans who destroyed their culture and took their land away. So this American dream was total nonsense. So in fact, when you, when you, you come here with this idea that you're going to find what you're looking for, but even if, you, if, even if you make the trip safely, you know, and you get to where you're going, you're still going to be an outsider. You're still going to be a person who doesn't belong here because you're a brown person. We don't want you here, you know. But at the same time, you know, we have a, a long history of being together with Mexicans, you know, for years. I mean, in fact, uh, this is their own land, you know, at one time. This was part of the uh, Spanish Empire. So uh, it's ironic that at this point in history, we don't, we don't want them here, but they are very much needed. And also keep in mind one thing, that when Americans think of going on vacation, they think of Mexico, the beaches of Cancun and Cozumel and Puerto Vallarta, Mazatlán, all those things. What is one of the most popular foods in this country? Mexican food, you know, we love Mexican food. We love tacos and enchiladas and burritos and all that stuff. Now we drink tequila and, and, and mezcal. So we are appropriating a lot of their culture. We all of us know a little bit of Spanish to say something like, you know, a piece of taco instead of a piece of cake, you know, things like that. What is these contradictions that we have that don't seem to make a lot of sense? And at one time, back in, back in 1994 and before, the, the border was pretty much open. People could go back and forth, and that was never a problem. Why is it a problem now, you know? Racism, ideas of nationalism. So my project deals with all of these things from my own point of view, because I'm a migrant. I came here as a migrant looking for the same things that all of them come here for, looking for that place where you can reinvent yourself. Where you can where you can be somebody because you don't have to worry about you know your life being in danger and you don't have to worry about not having food on the table and things like that. So what I'm trying to do now with this project is to try to connect myself to that migration. I lived here for many years. I found pieces of the American dream, not the whole thing, just little pieces here and there, and to to be part of this migration. In, in any way I can, and the, and the only way that I know how is by making a piece of art that uh, exposes some of the secrets that the Sonoran Desert has. Because inside of this beautiful landscape, you know, iconic saguaros, you know, all kinds of beautiful fauna and flora, you know, 
javelinas and coyotes and, you know, howling coyotes, you know, what can be more iconic than that? But inside of this beautiful landscape, this beautiful Garden of Eden, there's a secret. People are dying out here, and no one seems to know that. Only people like me out here who, who go out, uh, you know, and trying to do something about it. Because as an artist, you have an obligation to react to, to the circumstances where you are. And this is my way to react to that, by creating these crosses or these markers or these things to bring awareness. And, you know, uh, this is also art without a viewer. You know, there's no such a thing as art without a viewer. Art needs to be seen. In this case, it doesn't, no one gets to see them. Very few people. But the idea that there's crosses out there making the desert look different. So that's, that's what the project is all about. It's a little bit of art. It's a little bit of social justice work, a little bit of humanitarian work, and a little bit of um, whatever you think you want to react to. It's out there. It's a sort of a, a phenomenological thing that you see out there. Is it sculpture? Is it a religious cross? It's something but you need to pay attention to what it is and see. You use your own vision, you know, don't go there with ideas already in your head that you're gonna see a cross. You may see more than a cross. You have to go beyond it. The perception has to change at that particular moment. Making things more visible, more accessible. Artists and researchers use technology and public access tool to make visible the consequences of the US border regime on people who try to cross without authorization. Vistas de la Frontera is a digital memorial project of Alisa Quintanilla, a researcher who did her PhD in critical studies at the University of Pittsburgh. She explains her project. Um, my project is titled Vistas de la Frontera. It is a digital memorial for migrants who have died um, in the process of crossing the U.S.-Mexico border um, from around 2001 to the present, based on the data that we have. I use 360 technologies to create um, interactive videos for users to see the places where migrant bodies were recovered. Um, within that, I place the names of the migrants to sort of embed their memory within the, the video itself and within the space. It is a public project. Um, everything that I, I've done is used through, done through um, public means. So there's an interactive map that's uh, just a Google map. Anyone can access it. All of the videos are posted publicly on YouTube as well. Uh, the idea behind it being public is that these issues need to spread far beyond the border. And so making them publicly accessible allows more people to understand what's happening and also to collectively mourn for those who have died here. When I taught at the University of Pittsburgh, um, when I taught border issues, I had a lot of students who had very little understanding of what was happening along the U.S.-Mexico border. They didn't know about prevention through deterrence. They didn't know about why it was such a contentious space at all, which makes sense. These kids are from Western Pennsylvania. The border feels very, very distant for them. And so one of the missions of Vistas de la Frontera is to make those spaces, the very space of the desert borderlands, more accessible to a larger public. The population of Arizona is not very big for the size of the state. The population of Texas is quite large, but a lot of it is not along the border. And these are two places that are very contested. And a lot of people, and by a lot of people, I mean most of the United States beyond the border, doesn't understand what that, those spaces look like and how the environment is being weaponized against migrants. So that's really at the core of, of this project is making that environment accessible to show, how, show people how policy is interwoven within, with the environment to um, effectively kill 
migrants as they're crossing and to not only kill them, but to make their deaths invisible. These people die in very far and excluded places, isolated places, and there's not a lot of mourning or recognition for their deaths. So part of the project is to make their deaths accessible in a way that allows us to grieve for them. And there's always this sort of tension for grieving for people you don't know, but part of the project is to invite people to grieve for someone because they were a person. They, lo they died under systems that were actively against them, and those systems are a choice to be <laughs> put in place. So grieving in this way is an act of recognition, and it's a very, I don't want to say humanizing because they're already human, but it's a very kind of collective act that brings people together to recognize how systems are placed in direct opposition of certain groups. So there's this kind of return we have to do to continuously mourn, um, to continuously acknowledge what is happening in these spaces. And using digital methods is a way of moving it beyond the border itself, uh, making it a, visible to a larger public. So it can't be as easily ignored. And we ask more people to mourn with us, to acknowledge what is happening here and how preventable it actually is. So within that, it's, it's a digital piece, but it's one that I want to move into like gallery spaces, museum spaces, and just make it bigger and more accessible to more people. Because a lot of, even with all of the discourses that surround the border here in the US and like the border wall and all of these things, people don't acknowledge or know about prevention through deterrence. It's a policy that's been in place for what, 26 years now, and it's so quiet but so effective that it's not going anywhere. So through these deaths, which are political, we can sort of put pressure on the kinds of policies that are being implemented in the borderlands. I plan on coming back here for as many years as I can to continue working on it. Um, it will never be complete. It's inherently an incomplete project just because of a lot of practical constraints and also the fact that this policy isn't changing. Um, so, as I will work on it as long as I possibly can. This fifth episode shows us how families and their supporters take different actions in the search of truth. Episode six will talk about the different key players intervening in the identification process of the remains found in the desert of Sonora. Thank you for following Borderlands, a multi-episode podcast about the US-Mexico migration border policies and their impact on communities living in the borderland. See you soon and don't forget, This episode was mixed by Nicolas Puissant.